are today starting a series that will last four weeks. Today is a doctrinal foundation for what I hope is a helpful series, which we're calling Ordinary People. And what I'd like to do today is lay a biblical and theological foundation for the world and the way it works. But before I do that, I'd like to dive into this question. How did we all get so anxious and so discontented? Every survey I can find from every reliable source tells me that we are living in the most anxious age in American history, maybe in all of human history. Some age groups, the younger, generally speaking, the younger Americans are, the more likely they are to report facts like anxiety, depression, up to and including self-harm. The youngest Americans with no paying no attention to socioeconomic conditions or ethnicity, just looking purely at age, not education level or income or anything like that, fully 49% of, Amer of young Americans report to feeling constantly pressured by anxiety, fear, and depressive feelings and thoughts. How did we get here? Now, I'm not opening the Bible at this point. I'm just giving you some pastoral observations based on years of study and pastoral counseling and reading from people who actually study these issues. I'd like, before we talk about what an ordinary, good, godly, meaningful life should be, before we answer the question of how should we live, I'd like to help you step back and with the help of a different kind of study and a different observation, give you my personal thoughts on how we arrived at this place. What's driving our anxiety is not biblical truth. It's often not even reality itself in the real world. It's our culture. And I find in our culture three characteristics that are prone to make us anxious. The first is this. More than any other human culture that I can find in recorded history, Americans are fiercely autonomous. I did it, the song says, my way. Certainly not your way. Not even our way. I did it my way. Scholars brighter than I have said that we are living in an age that Carl Truman, for instance, calls the age of expressive individualism. What does that historian mean by that? He says that according to our culture and our own self-identity, your highest and best goal is to discern who you are and express it to the world. And that is done irrespective of family, or tradition, or teaching, or religious belief, or spiritual thinking, or counselors, or advisors, all of those things can safely be put aside, and it may even be courageous and noble to do so if what anyone and everyone is telling you may be up to the point of what God Himself is telling you, if it conflicts with your own personal identity and self-belief, you can disregard anybody and everybody and express who you individually are. Now, that's a lot of pressure because it is entirely up to you. 
using other people's wisdom and teaching and knowledge accumulated through centuries, perhaps even recorded in the eternal words of Scripture, all of that is only helpful to you if it helps you express who you believe yourself to be on any given day. That is a fierce autonomy with little or no regard to anybody else, including family and other institutions, that's the first plank or the first strain in our culture. The second one goes right along with it, and that is infinite options. I grew up in northern Mexico, as I've told you many times, if you've been in our church for any amount of time, that's no mystery to you. It's such a core part of my being, I seem to bring it up all the time. Sorry about that. But when I went to an American grocery store for the first time as an eight-year-old kid, it just shut my brain down. And if you've never been much outside of the United States, you may not even imagine why, but the reason is really obvious. There were so many choices. I just couldn't fathom that there was an entire aisle called crackers. <laughs> many other countries don't have this whatever you want to call it, privilege, luxury, trait, I don't even know what it is. There's six kinds of bologna in American grocery stores. Folks, think about that for a second. Bologna is just about as low as you can go on things to eat, and you're given anywhere between three and half a dozen choices, each one of them competing for your attention. Some are claiming to have high value and actually somehow be good for you, doubtful, Others are just telling you on the front side, hey, I'm cheap, and you've got to decide about everything. And that's just the food. Your identity, your self-expression, what you're going to do with your life, who you actually are, is infinitely up for grabs. The options are both infinite and somehow growing because who you are and what you do is forever and entirely up to you. Third is enticing marketing. Some of the most clever people in America work in marketing. Years ago, I had a friend who worked, uh, graduated from an Ivy League university and worked at one of the top advertisers, advertisers in Los Angeles, a worldwide firm. And I was just astonished at the complexity, the depth of analysis, and the thought that brilliant people handpicked from some of the nation's best colleges and universities would put into the simple selling of anything they chose to take on as a client. And here's the problem with that. The whole point of marketing is to chronically and always tell you what you already have is not quite good enough. It is designed to create a sense of discontentment and insufficiency and inadequacy in you so that you will buy what's next. You take all three of these things together, it's an anxiety-producing machine. Who you are and what you will do is entirely up to you. Your only sacred calling in life is to discover whatever you choose to be and express it. Only in America could the United States military, and my son is a soldier, so I say that with all due and respect to present and active and future service members, but only in America could the army have a very successful slogan called, Be All That, you remember this? You can be. What a great, great hook. It's not about the mission, it's about you. 
All we really care about is maximizing you. Come on in. My son can tell you, once you're inside the machine, there's a whole bunch of people that don't really care that much about who you are and what you want to be. The mission very quickly moves to the top of the list. It's marketing of self-optimization, of continual self-improvement, of choosing the best of, one, of millions of options, the best at any given moment. All of that, of course, is going to produce almost unbearable pressure and strain. So you have to figure it out, by definition, all by yourself, all the while people who may be smarter than you are tell you chronically, it's never enough. You have one more thing to do, one more thing to buy, one more thing to acquire, and then maybe you'll have it. And they keep moving the finish line until you die. That's why we're anxious. One of my best professors was a brilliant cultural anthropologist who trained a whole generation of anthropologists and missionaries. I was in his classroom as a future missionary, and before I heard him teach a word, I knew that my professor was destined for academic greatness because his name is Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelter. Okay? When you are walk around as a kid with a name like Sherwood Lingenfelter, you're destined for academic greatness, and he was. He was not only a brilliant professor, he was the provost, meaning the number two at Biola University when I was there in the seminary, and I'm summarizing some of his teaching to give you a little cultural insight that is woven through with biblical wisdom regarding our culture. Dr. L says, culture is not neutral. It is a palace where we can enjoy the life God gave us and a prison that keeps us from obeying Him. Human cultures show God's goodness and glory in some respect because they are made by people who God loves, who He made in His image, who He loves enough to send His Son after them to redeem them, but it's also a prison because all of those human beings are fallen and selfish and stained by sin. So when you're in your own culture, you feel safe, you feel like you can thrive. But that same culture that gives you so much enjoyment in subtle ways that are indiscernible to you because you're like the fish in water, you no longer notice the water, it's just your natural environment, is also your culture is a prison to keep you from seeing God as He is and especially from obeying Him. That's my pastoral insight on how we came to be so anxious. We've put ourselves in the place of God made our self-determination and identity and purpose and work and vocation and hobbies and family and choices all depend entirely on us. We have also have, in our autonomy, we have an infinite number of options we could choose if we so chose, and the entire time we have very smart people telling us whatever choice we have, we could be making a better one. No wonder we feel so anxious and pressured. Now, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach us? Because that's really what I would like you to see. The Bible's primary message is man's need and God's work for us to live in harmony with our Creator. The first verse of the Bible begins with something that mere observation of nature should make obvious that God Himself made the world and everything that is in it. 
And if we are created beings, we should know who our Creator is and live in harmony with Him. So I have really two big biblical ideas. And then third, and very practically I hope, some habits for you to cultivate so that you can begin to grow in your contentedness so that you can start banishing anxiety and find your place in God's world so that your ordinary life on this earth can actually make an eternal impact. Two ideas and then some suggestions from Scripture itself how to cultivate the habits. Notice, cultivate habits. In other words, it's not a one-time decision. It won't be something that you can settle today. Rather, it's a truth you need to believe and a journey you need to start taking. This will orient you on that path, I hope, peacefully and joyfully for the rest of our lives. Here's the first big idea. Because God made us, we are both glorious and lowly. We are both of those things at the same time, all the time. The reason I say that is the scripture I just read to you, Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, David said, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Let me remind you of the setting and the author. David lived a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. He always knew that the best light show anywhere in the universe was outside his palace or outside his tent. He didn't see a light bulb his entire life. So he, like the ancients were, was accustomed to being in nature and something that we can't easily do, marveling at nature. There's so much light around us, it can barely be dark in Southern California. David went outside and under the canopy of God's creation said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, then he asked this amazed question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, if you can hang all these constellations in space, if you can keep these stars and the distant planets I can see with my naked eye, if you keep all of that above me and around me, why do you care about what happens to me? I am one among so many. I will be here for such a short time. The scope and the nature of your work is so vast and so magnificent. Why would you care about me? And then he gives the answer. Yet you have made him, human beings, mankind, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and, read the rest of it with me please, crowned him with glory and honor. Did you recognize that as a human being, whoever you are, God has crowned you with glory and honor? You're made in God's own image. God has and deserves all glory and all honor, but in His goodness, because He makes human beings and human beings alone in His own image, He gave you glory and honor. And that verse, those two verses taken together, teach you this big biblical idea that we are at the same time lowly creatures, Weak, frail individuals in a vast world that God made. 
but because God made us. We bear his image out of his grace and goodness and kindness. He gives us, he crowns us with what alone belongs to him, with glory and with honor. This verse may strike you in a different way. It can either humble you or lift you up. More on that in a moment. All I need you to see right now is what a human life, what an ordinary human life is, is at the same time lowly and frail and frail and small and yet immensely important because it was created by God. You may feel lowly and small because you were created. You didn't make yourself. You were God's idea. You were made according to God's design. You were made in His image. That may humble you and at the same time that may encourage you that you're not a cosmic accident. Because regarding the fact of our undeniable existence in this world as human beings, there really are only two choices. The secular answer that does not take God into account, that has no room for Him, tells you that you are a cosmic accident. That an immeasurable long time ago in an event called the singularity, a wildly improbable series of events began to take place that resulted improbably with no reason at all for it to happen, you. And what you are is really just a super, super, super advanced primate that should not really be here, that is only moving along, driven along by electrical impulses and chemical reactions that just somehow in an unguided, unintelligent process assembled themselves improbably in you. And that's all you are. And you'll blink out of existence just like everything else in this universe eventually will. The Bible's answer, which requires far less faith, is that there is an infinitely great and loving and superior and intelligent mind above you who because of his own love and goodness made people in his own image to love him and enjoy him forever. Psalms and all the Bible announces that great truth. And that means that our existence is lowly because we were made. We didn't make ourselves. Our autonomy only begins when somebody else gives us life. We can only make choices because someone else's intelligence makes it possible. And the marketers are wrong because we're already worthy and filled with dignity because we were made in the image of God. You just need to find your place in God's world and see yourself at the same time as glorious and lowly. The second big biblical idea is this. The purpose of our life, made by a God like this, is to be found in God himself and in other people that God made, and the purpose of our life is never actually found in ourselves. The invitation from secular culture to go deep inside yourself, and what a curious, what a curious phrase, to find yourself, is a dead end. And that that road that bends only and always inward back into you will ultimately lead you nowhere. The purpose of the Creator who gave you a mind to think thoughts after Him, 
who gave you a heart and mind and will and emotions to care about him and to care about others. That creator says that the real purpose of life is God himself and other people he made, not merely you yourself. Listen to Jesus explain it, John 17, verse 3. Let me give you the setting. Jesus is about to be arrested. He's going to be condemned in a mockery of a trial and killed on a Roman cross. He's doing that not by accident. He's doing that for my sins and for yours. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he's arrested. He knows where he's headed. And in John 17, one of the deepest, most beautiful chapters in the Bible, if you've never read it, I recommend it, Jesus is pouring his his heart out to his Father, not to teach the disciples to pray, but because at that moment he needs communion with the Father, and we have the privilege of listening in. And he defines what eternal life is in the beginning of his prayer. Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, read the rest of it with me, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a compelling sentence. And I told both services earlier, I, yesterday I realized and was kind of humbled a little bit, I have kind of lost track of systematic Bible memorization that I used to practice. I'm way too random now. I'm going to be more purposely memorizing Scripture, and this is the first verse I would invite you to memorize with me. It's just a sentence, and it's a very important statement because it tells you what eternal life actually is. And it's not a possession. It's the knowledge of a person. This is eternal life, that they know you. And Jesus Christ, the only, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice, and this is really important, and if you're a particular kind of person who loves to study the Bible, I want you especially to listen to this next little bit. Gotcha? You can know, and people who love to study the Bible and read theological books, you can accumulate a great deal of knowledge about God And some people can do that without advancing much in their actual knowledge of God. Catch the distinction. You can know things about God without knowing much about God himself. It's like this. I've been married to one wonderful woman for 31 years now. I could dedicate myself for the next three days to interviewing her in depth and interviewing people who know her well and love her, and I could find out through interviews and taking careful notes, I could learn all about my wife. And that wouldn't help my marriage one bit if it didn't result in me talking to her, in me listening to her, in my using the knowledge I now have of her to love her, care for her, serve her, be good to her. You can learn a great number of things about God without it actually bringing you into communion with God. How do you turn the corner? How does it make a difference? Well, let me encourage you, whenever you're reading the Bible or hearing Bible teaching that is obviously drawn from Scripture, when you learn something about God, make it your habit to then turn to God and deal with Him, talk to Him, worship Him, 
pray to him, confess to him, praise to him, whatever, it, whatever that brings up in you, take it to him immediately in personal relationship through prayer and thinking carefully before him about what you just learned. For instance, if we were just reading Psalm chapter 8, and you are the kind of person who you have been told, though you didn't really want to hear it, that you make life all about yourself, and people tell you that you're always about the drama, and it all has to go around you, and you hear those complaints and annoyances, and you read Psalm 8, and you read David's amazement that God cares about him at all, and you think to yourself, I've never been amazed that God loves me. I really think he should, because I'm pretty awesome. And a lot of people think like that. They think God's getting the better end of the deal loving them because they love themselves quite a bit. If you discover in Psalm chapter 8 that that humbles you, turn to God in confession at that moment. Tell Him you're sorry because He's shown you your pride. If, on the other hand, you're the kind of person who was maybe raised in an abusive family or were part of abusive relationships and people have chronically told you that you're worthless and no good and you'll never make any difference and you're no good at all and nobody could ever love you being the kind of person you are and you discover instead that God has crowned you with glory and honor, thank Him. Praise Him. Love him back because of what he showed you. Those facts should always turn you to relationship because the purpose of life is always found in God and other people, never in you centering and serving yourself. Jesus said it over and over. He said it in two more places in Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew 28. Here's the first one. Teacher was, Jesus was asked in an adversarial way, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Notice, the first commandment, the one that brings them all together, the, of all the things that God commanded, the one that matters most, the greatest of them all is to love the God that is there with all that you've got. All your soul, all your heart, all your mind. And a second, Jesus said, is like it. Not above it, not even equal to it, but like it. You shall love who? your neighbor. Who's that? That's the person beside you who has a need you can meet. That's the biblical definition of a neighbor. It's not necessarily someone you like. It's someone who has a need that you can meet. You shall love your neighbor as the standard is different. You don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've given that to God. All you have to do for your neighbor is love him the way you love what? Well, that'd be pretty good. If you're married and you go home and from this day forward you love your spouse the way you love yourself, your wife's going to feel super loved because we all love ourselves. As I've quoted my pastor, my predecessor here so many times, he used to say, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. <laughs> and that's how people live. You go into your workplace, your school, your circle tomorrow, the people that keep you busy, whether in work or school or a hobby all week long, you go with the determination that you've loved God 
You've met with him in the morning. He's filled you up with his truth, and now you're going into your office, into your workplace, into your school with the determination to love them the same way you love yourself. You'll transform that environment. They may be shocked by it. Some of you spend the rest of the month of October, this is October 1st, you spend all of October loving the people you work with every day the way you love yourself, they're going to see a change in you. They may fear you've had a stroke and something fundamentally changed inside of you because they're going to discover a level of love and care that they haven't seen in you before. And it's revolutionary because everyone in this world is looking out for one person, themselves. Jesus disrupts all that, saying, no, your great obligation is to love the God who made you and loved you first with everything you have, and on the basis and the strength of what God loved you with, you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Matthew 28, right after the resurrection, Jesus gave the, what we call the great commission to his disciples. These are his final instructions, and they should be the Christian's first priority. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice, the pressure is off of you because he has all the authority. You don't have to decide it all. In fact, you can't. You can rest in his authority. And with his authority, he tells you to do this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And here's a promise. And look, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice, those final instructions to Christians are focused entirely on others. You're under Jesus' authority. You're trusting in His goodness and His wisdom. You're going to spend the rest of your life telling other people who He is, teaching them what He first taught you, and you have this assurance that the one who has all authority is going to be with you personally all the way to the end. Our life has never been about ourselves. The marketers and the systems and the culture that has taught us to optimize life and to live it for our own self-discovery, our own self-expression, and our own self-fulfillment have been wrong. Jesus says, no, life that you were given by a God who loves you and crowned you with glory and honor is to be lived for God and for others. That's what the purpose is. Two huge biblical ideas. You were made by God and therefore glorious and lowly. And the purpose that God made you is to live for Him and for the people around you. Now let me get really practical and I'm done. What habits then do we need to cultivate to live as God intended? Three habits. And I challenge the people in the previous two services to just adopt one. All of these are important, as I'm going to show you. All of these things are biblical, but if you will adopt one of these habits at least and consciously put it into practice for the rest of the month until we get through this series at least, you're going to find that you're going to be a substantially different person. You may choose one that you think is the most needful, or you may choose instead the one that you think will be easiest and start with the low-hanging fruit, but choose one of these, give it to God, Dedicate it to others and see what happens. The first habit is this. We need to cultivate a sense of two things at once. 
personal responsibility along with deep community. Personal responsibility and deep community. And our culture presently is trying to make us choose. There are some sections of our culture that are denying or minimizing personal responsibility. They say that your life is really up to others, that others owe you and you, are, you deserve from others certain things that you should no longer have to take responsibility for. There's a very strong backlash to that, and there's a lot of very tough dudes, often former military, who have started a personal responsibility movement and issue these really gruff-voiced, high-testosterone, highly-challenging speeches to get up, stand on your feet, put your boots on, get out that door, and kick the world in the teeth every single day. Their emphasis is on personal responsibility. Both are necessary, as I'm going to show you. If you have one without the other, Life as God wants it to be is not sustainable and certainly not enjoyable. Look with me, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's community. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, if you're following along in the bulletin, you'll notice I underline verse 2 as well as verse 5. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 5 says, each will have to bear his own load. Does that sound contradictory to you? It may seem to. What's Paul saying? Well, part of it is the inadequacy of English language to convey what Paul was talking about. Here's a word picture to help you understand. Suppose we're going hiking and we're going to do a 20-mile hike in rugged terrain and it's going to take so long that we're going to have to pack our own food and water into the wilderness before we get back. We're going to need a lot of water and a lot of food to make the trek and get safely back to the car. And when somebody shows up and says, guys, I heard you were going, and I certainly can't carry a backpack. I can't even carry a bottle of water, but I would like to come with you. I brought a pack. I'd like one of you to put it on your chest and keep your backpack on your back, and I'd just like to tag along. Any responsible group of hikers would say, no, this is not the hike for you. When we go mall walking in a month or two, we'll let you know, but this is not for you. Each one will have to bear his own load. Now suppose the group, each carrying their own pack, is making their way through a heavily wooded forest and an tr old rotten tree falls over and lands on one of the hikers. And now you've got 600 pounds of dead wood on someone's back and their face is down in the dirt. Would it then be responsible for the group to say, hey man, the tree's on your back. We need you to do a push-up and then leap athletically forward to get out from under the tree. Would any reasonable group of people do that? No, of course. As soon as the tree crushes someone, the entire group is running to bear the burden off of her. That's the biblical picture. There are responsibilities in life that belong to you and to you alone, and God says in His Word, you do your own work. 
Don't boast in somebody else's achievement. Do your own work. Pick your own weight up and go down the road. But every one of us will have burdens that are so heavy, we find them crushing. And at that moment, the command of Jesus is, run to each other. Put the shoulder under the heavy weight that that person cannot bear alone and help them. That's why in this church we have two dynamics. We will sometimes lovingly tell someone, no, we're not going to do what you ask. That You need to do that yourself. That is part of your God-given responsibility, and you still have the capacity to do that for yourself. And we're going to insist that you do because that's how God wants life to work. On many other occasions, many more, more frequent occasions, we run to the person who is being crushed by a burden of life and we say to them, we're all here with all that we've got because we can tell no one can carry that burden alone. We're here with you and we're going to lift that off of you. This is all over the Bible. Look at Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief, we're told, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And Paul says, here's the purpose of work. Read the rest of it with me doing honest work with his own hands, read with me, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice it goes without saying that he's going to cover his own needs. That's why most people steal. They take your stuff because they don't want to earn it themselves. Rarely do people steal to legitimately provide to someone who's going through a crisis. They're usually stealing just for their own enjoyment and for their own enrichment. Paul doesn't even mention that. That's obvious. But if your standard of work and living does not extend beyond covering your own needs and wants, if you are not actively, consciously, on a schedule, giving things away to share with people in need, you're not working according to a Christian standard because... In Christianity, in God's design, we pursue personal responsibility as well as deep community. That's habit number one. Here's the second one and perhaps more challenging. These two things always come in pairs, it seems, in Paul's writing. Paul says that we should be pursuing as a matter of habit godly character and contentment. You say, that sounds like a lot. Well, I can't help it. Paul put them in the same sentence. Look, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you have a character that is like the character of Christ and you are contented with what you have, Paul says you're well ahead of the game. I don't need to teach much here. This passage is so clear it explains itself. Look. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Notice, friends, you'll never see a hearse towing a safe deposit box. They always go alone. But if we have food and clothing with these, what does it say? We will be content. Notice Paul didn't say we should be content. He said we will be. It's a matter of commitment. It's an attitude. If the basics are covered, I'll be satisfied with that. If the basics are covered, I'll be grateful to God for that. That's what contentment is. It's not apathy. It's not resignation. It's not necessarily poverty. 
Though you can be content in poverty and you can be content in riches, it's accepting from God what He has given you at that moment and trusting that He will provide. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Notice the warning. Listen to how this warns us off in coastal Orange County in 2023. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice Paul didn't even say you had to have money for it to ruin you. All he said is you have to desire it. You have to crave it. You have to hunger after it. I can tell you many people who love money, who have ruined their lives over it, are poor. I've seen that all over the world, and especially in Latin America, they never had anything resembling wealth, but they always wanted to. And the fact that they were never wealthy according to their own self-understanding ruined their view of God, spoiled their enjoyment of what God did provide. It ruined their lives because they refused to be contented. How do you work on that? You're continually grateful for what God has provided. Remember that Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our, what do you say? He didn't say weekly. Sometimes I wish he'd say quarterly or annual. I could breathe a little. God wants you to realize that every day is a gift. The things he has provided in it, great or small, come from his hand. And to be gratefully practicing thankfulness to him for what he has provided and remembering that the purpose of God giving things into your hands is that they will eventually arrive in his kingdom and into the hands and lives of others. Gratitude and giving is the most practical way I know to practice contentment. And finally, and maybe nothing more needful in Orange County than this, first, personal responsibility with deep community, second, godly character and contentment, and a third habit to cultivate. Whatever you do, do it as to the Lord, and very important in Huntington Beach, not to impress people. Not to impress people. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice, Ordinary is not mediocre. Ordinary is not poor. Ordinary can and should be excellent. We're all ordinary because we are created beings. We were made to be in this earth only for a brief time and to enjoy God who made us forever someday. For here, right now, all we can do with what we, can, with what we already have is to do the best we can in the name of Jesus. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. Notice there's no laziness, there's no apathy, there's no resignation here. The work that you've been given to do in that moment, it may not be the work that you want, it may not be the work that you will someday enjoy, but today, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's very important. You work for Jesus. You have clients and customers and patients and constituents Whatever your work involves, 
You have people that you answer to, but ultimately you're doing it in the name of Jesus. If you can't do it in the name of Jesus, here's a tip, you shouldn't be doing it at all. But if it's honest work, you're doing it in His name for His glory and for the good of others. Knowing, Paul says, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And for those who are mistreated in terrible jobs by awful people, take this word of comfort. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done as there is no partiality. One reason ordinary people ruin their lives is because they don't work as unto the Lord. They work to soothe themselves and impress others. And that's a losing game. It'll never be enough. One wise man said years ago that a lot of people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't even like. And that's coastal Orange County in one sentence if I ever heard it. Escape that. They call it the rat race for a reason. Don't participate. Remember that you are serving the Lord Christ. And the point of this message, if you only take one thing, is simply this. An ordinary life lived for the glory of God and the good of others has a beauty that will last, and it'll last forever. Your ordinary brief life in this earth, which will continue forever by the grace of Jesus, can make a big impact, show a lot of God's glory, if you'll only live it for Him and for the good of others. Let's pray together.